And we're going to go through 1 Thessalonians and finish chapter 2 tonight. How many of you love the Word? Isn't the Bible good? I love the Scriptures. I love the Word of God. Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So we're looking at every word that comes out of the mouth of God in 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, we have come tonight because we're hungry and thirsty for your Word. We need you, Lord. We need the bread of life, and we ask you to speak to our hearts. Give us something that will just anchor our soul and bless our life and guide us toward you. Thank you for the power of your word, the might of your word. Now would you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. All right. It blesses me to see this many people come out. Just, I, I want to say just to hear the teaching of the Word, but it's not a just. Coming out wisely to hear the teaching of the Word because it's so important in our day that we get it. Now, we have been going through 1 Thessalonians, uh, the first letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very first one. And it's the first letter to the Gentiles, which is us. And so we've gotten through the first chapter and a half, and uh, we're going to look tonight at Paul's crown of rejoicing at Christ's return. The return of Christ, though it's mentioned a few times throughout the letter, is the primary theme of 1 Thessalonians. Paul fully believed and knew that Jesus was coming back. Any church that forsakes that belief is dead while they live. Now, last time we looked at the things that Paul had shunned, the things that he had shown, and the things that he had shared with the Thessalonians. He was very transparent with his folks, with his, his people, his, those that were looking to him for leadership, very, very honest with them. And so he is, I'm shunning these things. Let me show you some things about my life and share some things with you about my struggles. He was very open. Now, we finished last time with chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul talked about his fear of the Lord. Now, he didn't have a phobia of God. Phobos means, the Greek word phobos is dread fear, having a dread fear of something. That's why it's total propaganda to say to you or to me, if we don't believe that homosexuality is a righteous lifestyle, to call us homophobic. You don't know words if you use that, because phobos means I have a dread fear of something. And I don't have a dread fear of those living the homosexual lifestyle. Um, okay, so Paul is saying, not that he had a dread fear of God, but a respect for the awareness of God. He had an awareness of God. He said, I know that God is watching my ministry, my life and my ministry. The fear of the Lord is the continual awareness that God is watching and weighing every one of my thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. That's the fear of the Lord. I'm continually aware he's watching and weighing my life, okay? Now this time in the second half of chapter two, we're gonna see what is Paul's crown of rejoicing at Christ's return. And that we will deal with at the very end. But I want to show you first that Paul had a twofold concern for his converts. 
The first one was a fatherly concern. Read verse 11 with me, would you? As you know how we exhorted. Well, that's three of you. Come on, church. You're on, you're on radio. All right, let's try it again. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. As a who does? As a father does his own children. He said we exhorted and comforted and charged. Those three things. Now, Paul was not content simply to win people to Jesus. He recognized his responsibility as a spiritual father. The one who had led them to Christ. Now, in another place, the Bible says, you've got a lot of teachers, but you don't have many fathers in the faith. There's a lot of teachers, but not many fathers. When I read this... Um, you know, the older I get, it's starting to occur to me. I've been preaching since I was 18, 40 years. The Lord has graced me through the years to lead thousands of people to Christ through the years. And now my relationship with a lot of them is changing. It's not just the person that led them to Christ, but there is a, a fatherly. And don't ever, ever walk up and call me Daddy. I will not receive it. I don't want it, not looking for it, and don't call me Father Jeff. I had somebody from radio, I want to speak to Father Jeff. Well, that's not me. But I, I am having something that, that has sort of begun to happen in my life last few years. Now I'm 58. I just can't even believe it when I say it. It goes fast. But... There is, a, there is a fatherly care. I have preachers that call me that used to be under my ministry. Now they're in full-time ministry, pastoring and whatnot. And I'm a father type to them. I'm a father type to them. When they get in trouble, they call me. I may not hear from them for a year, but when they get in trouble, they call. Will you pray with me? What should I do? What, you know, what do you advise? Blah, blah, blah. Well, there is something that begins to happen when God puts you in ministry and you're there a long time. There are people that you begin to feel a fatherly care for. There's nothing weird about it unless you go calling me daddy. That's weird. And there are some preachers that want that. I don't understand that. Pastor is all I ever want to be called. Don't call me apostle. Don't call me prophet. If I was an evangelist, I wouldn't care if you called me an evangelist, but none of this other stuff. I don't need it because the reality is there. Okay? He, he was a spiritual father to them. And he cared about them in a fatherly way. Well, what did he do as, as a father? Well, he first exhorted them. Uh, he, he, the word exhort there is a, a Greek word meaning to call aside and to appeal to. And what Paul would do as sort of a father type spiritually to these, these converts is he would call various ones to his side. That's what exhort means. And after asking a few penetrating questions, how you doing? How's, how's your thought life? Now, I don't, this isn't in the Bible, but I'm guessing. Tell me your thought life. How you doing with temptation? Um, how are your earthly relationships coming along? How's your marriage? Paul would ask them questions as one who really had a spiritual right to do so. And they were accountable to him. 
And he would, he would want to know at what stage that person was in their spiritual life. And then he would go from there and he would exhort them. He would call them aside and say, all right, based on where you are, let me encourage you to do this, do that, take this step, do that step. Let me encourage you. His great aims were to impart doctrine, which I do every Wednesday night. This is doctrine night. The charismatic churches for years have been dying because of a lack of doctrine. This is doctrine night. I want to teach you doctrine. Now, also to develop Christian character. That's what he was after in them. To teach the principles of the new life in Christ. And to encourage submission to the will of God. He would say, come on, get back in the will of God. Get back in the call of God. He would exhort them. We can think of different ones he did that with. You know, get back into the things of God. Come on. Fulfill your calling. Get out there. Get back on the saddle. Don't quit. To Timothy, come on, stir up the gift of God in you. So he would exhort them. Then he also comforted them. Like a father, his children. Very early on in their faith, we saw at the first night of looking at this letter, the Thessalonians had encountered fierce hostility and persecution. They were born again into red-hot criticism and spiritual attack. Here's the truth. Some of them suffered physically. Others were ostracized by family and friends, wouldn't have a thing to do with them. Others had lost all their material wealth and possessions. And Paul knew how to comfort them. You know why? Because he had experienced every one of those things. He knew them. The great apostle would put an arm around their shoulder, listen sympathetically to their tales of woe, and then he says, he, he tells us in his letters he would weep with them. He said, weep with those that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice. It's exactly what he would do. He'd cry with them. I know it hurts. I know you're going through hell on earth. I know you've lost your family. I know your dad won't talk to you, your mom won't talk to you, or your children won't talk to you, or your lifelong best friends won't touch you now. I know. Because I've been there, Paul would say. I'm like the offscouring of the earth. I can cry with you. But child, son, daughter, I want to tell you, he's with you. And it's worth it. And when you see him face to face, it will have been worth it all. And he would encourage them and comfort them. But he also charged them, meaning to testify or to bear witness. Paul could talk to them like few others. He knew the perils and pitfalls of the spiritual life. He knew the character of his people. He knew their abilities. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their talents, and he knew their handicaps. And can I tell you tonight, church, somebody ought to know all those things about you and me. God doesn't create islands. He creates bridges. And we are to live transparently, confessing our faults one to another, praying one for another, that we might be healed. And so he knew all of these things about the Thessalonian believers. He knew them. He was there long enough, knew them well enough, related to them deeply enough to know these things about them. Now his second concern for them was not just a fatherly one, but a fundamental one. Look at verse 12. Read it with me, would you? That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He said, I want you to walk worthy of the one who has called you 
into glory. Paul the Apostle had a very high view of the Christian life. I don't think we have that in America. At least not everywhere. But Paul had a very high view of the Christian life and of the Christian. God's people, according to Paul, were sons of God, heirs of heaven, citizens of glory, joint heirs with Christ. A high calling just to be saved. Paul would have agreed with this statement, quote, remember whose child you are when you're out there walking around in the world and you think that nobody's looking, they are. And, and we need to remember whose child we are. Remember whose child you are. Paul would have loved that statement. If he'd have known it, he'd have put it in the Bible probably. And that's in essence what he's telling us. Remember whose child you are. Right when you think nobody's looking, you hear somebody call your name. And in the workplace, as soon as they find out that you're a believer, they're checking you out. They're watching you. Do they have anything I really don't have? Or is this all just a bunch of talk? So Paul said, remember, walk worthy of the name of Christ. We have been lifted from the gutter to the glory, from the guttermost to the uttermost. As the old preachers used to say, and I'm, I may pick it up. I like that statement. From the guttermost to the uttermost. How many of you were in the guttermost? And now you're in the uttermost. All right. All right, so act like it. He's telling his people, he's telling his children in the faith, act like it. When you're out there, act like somebody that used to be in the gutter, but now you're in the uttermost of the blessings of God. And you don't go where they go, do what they do, say what they say. There is a difference. God changed you. Now next, Paul talks of how the Thessalonians had received the truth. How did they receive it? Well, verse 13, read it with me. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you, what? Receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men. Stop right there. That you did, when we heard the gospel, we knew it was not the words of men. And right now, you are not listening to the words of a man. I'm reading you from the word of God. So it's different. And so these Thessalonians said, hey, we're not hearing the word of men. This is the word of God. And he goes on, but as it is in truth, what everybody, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe what's working in you, the word of God, what is renewing your mind, the word of God, what is changing your life, the word of God, what is growing you up, the word of God, what is delivering you from the snares and traps of the devil, the word of God, what illuminates your mind, the word of God. That old song that used to say, the word is working mightily in me. The word is working mightily in me. Well, it is. That's why you ought to be at that feeding trough every morning. Because when you read that word, it works mightily in you. Now, first, they had received the truth at its face value as God's inspired and inerrant word. They never doubted what Paul preached. It bore the ring of truth and authority. You can tell when something is true, it has a ring of truth to it. It just resonates with your spirit that what you're hearing is true. 
They said, when they heard the gospel, they said, this has a ring of authority to it. It has a ring of truth to it. This isn't normal. This is not a man philosophizing or pontificating about his own ideas and thoughts. This is the Word of God. The Word of God contains a perfect blend of the human and the divine. The Lord Jesus is described as the Word. He was there in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. When you looked in the eyes of Jesus when he was on earth, you were looking in the eyes of God. When you heard him, you were listening to the voice of God. When you watched him, you were watching God in action. He that has seen me has seen the Father. The works that I do, you will do also. What I see the Father doing, that's what I do. Show us the Father, Lord. He said, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you don't get it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God's revealed word, the Bible, is the same. It's a mixture of human and divine. Jesus was all God, all man, all man, all God. He was a perfect blend of human and divine. Right when you thought you were looking at something human about him, you realized there was something divine about him. And then right when you were watching him walk on water or heal the sick, he fell asleep in a boat and showed you his humanity. He was a perfect blend of human and divine. So is the Bible in your hand. Hold up your Bible. Hold up your Bible and just realize with me, you're not holding a normal book. It's not a normal book. It is a perfect blend of the human and the divine. Because the divine gave it to us, but he gave it to us through human instrumentality. We detect if you, when, you, when you study it, read it, and sweep through it, and read the whole thing, not just a few pet verses, but, but, but get to know Isaiah, get to know Jeremiah, get to know Ezekiel, get to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, get to know Paul and James, get to know the way they write and their, their, their differences, because there are differences because they were different men. And when you do, you'll detect differing personalities, styles, vocabularies of the various human instruments. Jeremiah, very unlike Isaiah. Ezekiel, out there, baby. Very different from Isaiah. Read Daniel, all of them, different men, yet all chosen by the same God to give us, well, I'm going to get into that in a minute. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but you see a difference. Yet everything they said was God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is given by Theonoustos, the breathed out, the breathed out word of the living God. It was breathed out by God so that every single word in the Bible bears the authority and authorship of God. These things I'm telling you right now are why Satan so fears the word. It is why Jesus defeated him solely by the word of God. Because the word is truth, pure, undiluted, undistilled truth. And the devil is pure, undiluted, undistilled evil and lies. He cannot handle the quoted word. Now, the word of God has a five-fold quality that the words of men do not have. 
And I want to tell you this because I want you, Turning Point, and our radio listeners, to know why the Bible in your hand is supernatural. First, it is inspired. God breathed. We've already talked about it just now. It's the Holy Spirit's own description of the Word. He moved on Paul to tell Timothy, all Scripture is inspired. Not most of it, part of it, some of it, all of it. Deuteronomy, Numbers, you name it. It may seem boring to you, but the Holy Ghost put it there. As a trumpeter breathes into his instrument and his fingers control the flow of his breath through the tubes. So God breathed his words through the human instruments and controlled the very parts of speech they used without in any way violating the freedom of the human writer. They didn't come under a trance and start writing like this. The Holy Spirit carried them along like a wind blows a sailboat. And being borne along by the Holy Spirit, they penned. And it's a perfect blend of human and divine. Second, the Word of God is inerrant. The original manuscripts are miraculously free from all error. God's Word in its original documents contains no absurdities, no mistakes, no inaccuracies, no contradictions. When God speaks about Adam and Eve, the fall, the flood, or the origin of languages at Babel, that settles it. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's kind of anti-intellectual and you need to broaden your mind a little bit. Why? No, I don't. Because I see what others have written. And there is no other explanation for the universe or the planet or life or people or animals or the marine life. There is no other explanation than design. Design. It's got to be intentionally designed. So who do you believe, Darwin or God? I believe God. I don't believe Darwin. I believe that evolution, as time goes by, is being exposed as the fraud that it always has been. It's not ignorant to believe that God created it. It's very intellectually honest. When I look at the stars and the universes and and all the life forms, there's no way that just happened with time and chance. I don't, listen, atheists have more faith than I do. When I look at it, and I look at God's creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the affirmament shows His handiwork. Day to day they utter speech. Night after night they show forth the knowledge of God. They can't even yet reach the end of this universe with the most powerful telescopes known to men. They keep finding new universes. But I don't need that. George Washington Carver spent his whole life studying peanuts. (laughs) Just the peanut. And it was an endless revelation of miracle after miracle and stunning fact after. If you can spend your whole life on a peanut... 
I'm not mocking atheists. There are, you know, there are a lot of Christians that used to be atheists, and, and I believe they're in a trap, and they're in a blindness of sorts. But the Word of God says there was an Adam and Eve, a fall, a flood, a Babel, a Jonah, a whale that swallowed him, spit him up on the shore three days later, and he was preaching good then. And I really believe one of the reasons they repented, because they took one look at a bleached white dude and said, I believe, I believe. Because he'd been in whale stomach acid for three days and nights, and Jonah called it hell. Seeming errors and contradictions in the Bible arise from poor translations, and there are some. Wrong interpretations, they abound. A partial grasp of the whole, human ignorance, bias, which is everywhere, and fallibility. None of those things prove Scripture wrong if you face it honestly. Third, the Word of God is infinite. That is, it's without measure or end. That is, it tells us things, it communicates truths that transcend our own powers of thought or comprehension. There are things that if we live to be a million, we could not, with our finite mind, grasp that God's Word tells us. For instance, God has always been. My mind can't go there. Can you? In the beginning was the Word, in the beginning of the world. But then we're told He was there way before the beginning. Before the beginning began, He was there. And guess what? Always had been there. My mind stops. If I can't come to a stop somewhere, my mind short circuits and starts sparking because I can't go into infinity either direction in my mind. But the Bible tells us about Jehovah God. He didn't become. He has always, always, evermore inhabited eternity. He is eternal. Well, my mind can't do that. The Word of God is infinite, not finite. David says, your thoughts are very deep. The Holy Spirit says in Roman or Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Just face it and accept it. God doesn't have IQ. He created IQ. God, God is infinitely beyond us. Paul said, quote, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and we can't find his ways. They are past finding out. There's a part of God that you and I will never fully understand. He's past finding out. Fourth, the Word of God is incisive. It has the power to penetrate our thoughts, move our hearts, quicken our consciences, conquer our wills. One of my favorite passages, for the Word of God is quick, which means living, and powerful, which means energetic. It's possessed of strength and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces where nothing else can go. It divides the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and motivations and intents of the heart. That's the Word of God. And I lean on that Word every time I preach because I know it's going to do what I could never do. 
The great preacher Charles Spurgeon walked into him. He was depressed. He was lost. He was brilliant, but he was very depressed and very melancholic. Walking around the streets of London one day as a very young man, he walked into a church and he had been saying, God, I just feel like I'm damned to hell. I feel like I'm condemned. I, I, I just can't seem to get peace and rest about my soul. And he walked into this little church and there was a substitute preacher who, as he said later, Spurgeon said, did great damage to the king's English. But here comes this future mover and shaker, probably the greatest pastoral preacher in the history of the church, walks in. There's about 10 to 15 people. He sits in the back, and this uneducated preacher just shouted out this verse. Look up and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon said it was like something smacked me in the face. It was like a light shone into my soul. And instantly I knew that I was saved. How did it happen? From some eloquent preacher? No. He simply quoted this mighty word that pierces and divides soul from spirit. Joint, and the word of God changed Charles Spurgeon. And what that man did, what an honor to bring to Christ the greatest soul winner of the entire 19th century. You never know who's going to come walking in. Fifth, the word of God is inescapable. Jesus, Jesus said, he that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. And the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What's going to judge people that reject God? The word. You cannot escape the word of God. It is inescapable. It will find you. Now, having looked at how they received the truth, Paul now looks at how the Thessalonians retained the truth. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Now, watch carefully. Not only had the word of God changed the Thessalonians, it also empowered them to endure great persecution. The word is working mightily in you. If we ever were to come under red-hot persecution, how would you and I endure it? The word working mightily in you. The same word that saved them kept them. Their worst persecutors had at first been the Jews. He calls them your own countrymen. But that would change to also include persecution from the Gentiles. Yet the Thessalonians retained the truth they had received. They held it tight, and guess what? It held them. You're being kept by the power of God, church. It's not a matter of you hanging on. God's hanging on to you. Can I tell you that? God's hanging on to you. Oh, I better confess it right, and I better do right, because if I don't do this right and say this right, then I might lose myself. Listen, God is hanging on to you. He's got, Jesus said, whoever the Father gives to me, not one of them is going to be lost. I'll keep every one that the Father gives me. Jesus had warned that persecution would be the natural lot of those who embrace Christianity. Jesus said, blessed are you when, not if, men shall revile you and persecute you. A recent report stated that a Christian is martyred every five minutes 
somewhere in the world. As we speak in Iran, there is an Iranian pastor who has refused to renounce Christ. The Iranian court has tried him and sentenced him to death. He still refuses to recant. Unless something happens, they're going to kill him. It could happen. It may have already happened. He has a wife. He has children. He's a young man. Why is he going to be killed? Because of his confession of Christ. What is keeping him and giving him the courage to look these Iranian Muslims in the face and say, I will not recant my Jesus, the word that is in him. Now Paul focuses on the tragedy of his own countrymen, the Jews. Verses 15 through 16, who, speaking of the Jews, killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Look at this laundry list. Killed Jesus, killed their prophets, and persecuted the church. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Now this is Paul talking, not Jeff Wickwire. I'm reading out of 1 Thessalonians. He goes on and shares what they have been doing against them, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now let me give you a powerful little Greek lesson real quick. It's, it's easy. Has come in the Greek is in the aorist tense. That means in Paul's mind, it's already done. It's finished. It's a done deal. Not the wrath is going to come or starting to come. It's already fallen on them. It's done. Aorist tense. Wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Well, the mention of persecution turns Paul's thoughts to the tragedy of the Jewish people. Their bitter hostility to Christ and Christianity never ceased to amaze this man who was chief among them, but he got saved. First, they killed the Lord Jesus. That's what the scripture says. No worse charge could be leveled on earth. They killed God's son. This is the only place where this charge is, is leveled against them by Paul. You see it in other places in the New Testament, but by Paul, this is the only place where he says the Jews killed Jesus. My countrymen. What had Jesus done toward them? He'd loved them. He'd taught them. He'd reasoned with them. He'd pleaded with them. He'd wept over them. He'd warned them. And they killed him. The son of the living God. God manifest in flesh. If I had had one scintilla of blame in that, what a dreadful thing to carry. To be that Roman that took that whip across his back, oh my. But even more, to be the Jewish Sanhedrin who orchestrated his crucifixion. Second, they killed their own prophets. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, had said just before they killed him, just before they martyred him, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? He was preaching. And then he continued saying, they have slain them which show the coming of the just one. 
of whom you have now been the betrayers and the murderers. So there Stephen himself says the Jews killed him. For example, Isaiah was sawn in half. Did you know that? Jeremiah was stoned to death. Being a prophet in those days was not a career choice. Third, they persecuted the early church. Paul says they have persecuted us, the Jewish people. One would think that the conversion of their chief agent of persecution, Saul of Tarsus, would have changed them or affected them or influenced them somehow. But no. They turned on Paul and also persecuted James and Peter along with the rest of the church. Persecuted them, hounded them, stalked them. The sad fact is that God had originally set the Hebrew people apart from the rest of the world for himself. Think about that. Talk about missing a calling. Okay? Say, so, well, pastor, then we ought to be against the Jews. Look at what all they've done. Did you know that people like Hitler took facts like I'm sharing with you tonight and said, for this very reason, this confirms why the Jews are bad and we need to take them off the planet. But the fact is, no, church, we are to bless them. We are to pray for them. We are to pray for Israel. We're to pray for Jerusalem. We're to bless God's people because the promise holds true. Those that bless you, I will bless. And those that curse you, I will curse. So no matter what they did, we need to pray for them. But now their calling was to be set apart uh, from the rest of the world for, for himself, for God. His plan was to reveal himself to them, to redeem them, to reign over them and make them a model of his goodness, greatness, glory, and grace. Yet they abysmally failed. In resisting God, they filled up the measure of their sins. Well, what does that mean? Another version says their sins had been piling up on them. What does that mean? Here's what it means. If you walk away from God or if you're out there and you're not walking with God at all, you're living in sin. The Bible teaches an accumulation takes place that God will try to call you. He will try to convict you. He will woo you. He will love on you. He will, he will try to reach you. But as you resist him and refuse to turn, the sins <clears throat> accumulate, not just in a person, but in a nation. That's why America is in real trouble right now. Because America is not repenting. The, the sins are accumulating. It happens with nations. It happens with tribes. It happens with individuals. And what this statement, they filled up the measure of their sins or their sins have been piling up, it reveals that God is patient. He gives time for repentance. He will sometimes wait centuries before sending judgment. He did this with Noah. Noah's out there building that ark for over a century, preaching righteousness. And their sins were piling up. And they refused to listen. And one day the judgment fell. God withheld his hand for 400 years, four centuries. In the case of the Amorites, you can read about that in Genesis 15. He waited and waited for Sodom and Gomorrah to turn. But one day his judgment finally fell. The wheel of judgment moves slowly, but move it does. And when it reaches the point where God says, that's it. I've given you opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance. It's clear to me you're never going to turn. Then his judgment falls. And it's awful. It's dreadful. Read Revelations. And in the case of the Jews, Paul said the wrath has now come upon them. 
to the uttermost. The anger of God had caught up with them at last. What did that mean? Time and space does not allow a full discourse on all of the woes experienced by the Jews. Remember the aorist tense. He said it's already, the wrath has already been poured out. Well, where do we see it in history? Stretching all the way back to the ten tribes being carried away into captivity by the Assyrians and then disappearing. Theirs has been one tale of woe after another. The Babylonian captivity of 70 years. When they were released to go rebuild the temple, only a small minority of them went. The rest of them were dispersed throughout the world. That's called the diaspora, where the majority of them were dispersed throughout the Gentile nations for centuries and on, on end, and only began to return in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. The arrival of the Romans who captured the promised land and held it in subjection, took their, their land away from them. That was judgment. Then the horrific destruction of the temple predicted by Jesus in A.D. 70, where he said, you see this beautiful temple? I tell you, not one stone is going to be left standing on another. It was decimated by Roman the Romans and Titus, where the Jews were slaughtered unmercifully and driven from their homeland. For 200 years, Jerusalem passed into oblivion. The long centuries of their dispersion have been full of peril. In the various places they have sought to live, they've suffered discrimination, segregation, persecution, and expulsion every time all the way back to Old Testament times. The very expression, wandering Jew, became a proverb. They have been blamed for the ills of the world, accused of horrible atrocities by the Nazis and others. They were held responsible for the black death during the Dark Ages. And they made, were made the scapegoats for every failed enterprise, the Jews. As Jesus was being judged by Pilate, they cried out something that I guarantee you they would give anything to take back. His blood be on us and on our children. Well, God heard it. And guess what? It has been. What a thing to say. Their history shows how tragically and terrible their self-imposed curse has haunted them. Now we're going to close. Everybody breathe deep and say, wow. So see, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. He that sows the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's just the way it is. Now, we're going to zip through these last couple of verses quickly. We, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul's great desire was to see the Thessalonian Christians again face to face. Being absent had not affected his love for them one iota. This man loved people. Verse 18, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But what happened? He said, I wanted to come to you. And, and boy, the, the devil did not want Paul visiting you as a church. Because he said everywhere he went to the church... He imparted spiritual gifts to them, which made them more dangerous to the devil. So Satan hindered him. Hindered means to cut into, like blocking off a road. To hinder by introducing an obstacle that stands sharply in the way of a moving object. To sharply impede by cutting off what is desired or needed. Look at this, saints of God. Because some of you may very well be being hindered by Satan tonight. 
I don't say that in a bad way. It's good to know it. This week, I've doubled up my prayers. We had a great Sunday. And I know that when you have a great Sunday, the devil's going to try to give you hell during the week. So I've doubled up my prayers because I don't want the devil to hinder me. That is to impede my progress in any way. Watching sights the enemy. Praying fights the enemy. I know my enemy. And so I've been doubling up on prayers this week. Double up with me. We saw all those people come forward last Sunday. It's going to be worse this Sunday. As in better. Y'all are serious tonight. All right. Now watch this. Paul discerned that it was Satan himself that was actively seeking to keep him from the Thessalonians. We remember Paul's words to the Ephesians. We do not battle flesh and blood. Now verses 19 to 20, we close out the chapter. Uh, Can you read it with me? For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here was Paul's crown. Are you ready? He could not wait for the return of Christ where he could watch those he had led to Christ walk into glory. That's what he couldn't wait for. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You are our crown. You know why I teach you this word? Because one day I'm going to answer for what I said to you. And you know what I'm looking for? Standing there and watching all of you go on by. Well, there they go. Boy, we went through it with that one. And that one made it too. Look at that. And then, and then where's so-and-so? <laughs> the crown of rejoicing is a victor's crown. Paul anticipated seeing his converts step forward at the judgment seat of Christ to receive their reward. Let's stand together, can we? <clears throat> Amen. Give the Lord a hand. That's good. Amen. All right, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your rich word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for showing us the ways of God. And Lord, help us to honor God in our lifestyle, honor God on this earth. We thank you for the certain promise that Jesus is coming again. In his mighty name, one stanza, and then we're going to be dismissed. Sing it with me. Thank you.